Welcome to the Eastman Dental Podcast, where we hope to inspire, motivate and provide education from our guests' experience. Well, that was an interesting episode with uh, Peter Briggs, wasn't it? I mean, goodness, who would have thought we would have covered all of those topics? I mean, really, I'm quite humbled by some of the things that he's actually mentioned today. Really humbled. Yeah, it was really honest of him talking about his early career, health education England, a little bit about his practice. I think we really touched on a lot of bases and I'm really excited for our listeners to hear about his thoughts for the future as well. Grab a coffee, sit back, listen up and see what our next guest, Peter Briggs, has to share with you. With your hosts, Josh Hudson and Julia Bruin. Hello, Peter. It's very, very lovely to have you on our podcast today. So we always tend to ask all of our guests these sort of preliminary questions, if you like, and they're always really about their early career and how people got into dentistry. Because actually, sometimes people fall into things. Some people really set up from being a five-year-old that they've always wanted to be a dentist. What was it for you? So thank you, Julia. Thank you very much for asking me to come along. It's great to see you again, uh, both of you. So in terms of my journey, in terms of doing dentistry, I was one of five children uh, brought up in uh, the East Midlands. Uh, My father was a general medical practitioner and his brother was a dentist and they were the first Briggses to have gone to to university. And when they demobbed from the military, uh, there were opportunities uh, for people to do medicine and dentistry because they needed people, they needed workforce. So they both went to the Royal, as is now the Royal London Hospital, and did medicine and dentistry. And for my life, my father was a busy general medical practitioner, and his older brother was quite a, you know, quite a, quite a, quite a force in terms of his passion, enthusiasm, and dentistry. So I was four of five children, uh, but school sort of struggled a bit because I'm a left-handed dyslexic, uh, so really struggled at school in terms of attainment. So I ended up doing three science A-levels eventually at Luton Sixth Form College uh, to no great standard. And um, it seemed sensible to apply for dentistry. I would never have got into medicine because my A-levels were never going to be good enough. And I wasn't bothered actually getting into medicine or dentistry, to be honest, but either would either would have ticked the box, to be, to be absolutely honest. And then I got some pretty poor A-level results uh, and I got into KCH, King's College Hospital School for uh, uh, Medicine and Dentistry as it was then in South East London. Uh, and I think one of the reasons I got in below offer was because I you know, had probably had a good report from Sixth Form College and I was quite a good sportsman. Uh, and I chose on purpose to go to King's. I didn't want to go to the London because my brother was doing medicine at the London. So I wanted to t- take my own little furrow. So that's why I ended up at uh, doing dentistry at KCH. Uh, and of course, the first year at KCH was a huge um, eye-opener for me because it was a multi-faculty year. The first year used to be spent at K- the, the KCL campus and Strand. So I never looked back. And w- when I got into dental school, I understood dentistry. I never understood physics. Um, I understood and got dentistry and was was able to thrive at dental school like I'd never ever been able to do it at school. That's that's a really yeah. a wonderful and inspiring story really because actually you know lots of people feel as though they're not academically able to do things, but actually you know if you really put your heart to it and try hard, that's a wonderful example, mm. isn't it? 
Yeah, and and uh, uh, when I was having my interview at KCH, um, my fa- although my father was a general medical practitioner, we lived on a small farm and we spent a lot of our time in and around farming, my brothers and sisters. And I was asked, I was always being practical with my hands, and I was asked um, by one of the interviewers, how, how can you reassure us that you have got what it needs to be to be a dentist in terms of manual dexterity? And I said to them that I can repair anything with Baylor twine, uh, with which with with which they both nearly fell off the chair laughing, and they both remembered that comment. And I'm sure it's one of the reasons I got in. Well, and that, and it sounds like we might hear more stories about what you've done um, in your career as a result of that. Things are different now, I guess, because that's that's quite an interesting story. And we've had a few guests on the podcast that have had this story of maybe wanting to do medicine and ended up doing dentistry. Now I feel like the academic attainment needed to get into dentistry is a lot higher than maybe it was then. Do you think that that influences the people coming through? Because somebody like yourself who actually got dentistry may not have got through that first hurdle nowadays. Yeah, I think it's, um, I I think A-level, you've got to have some mechanisms of sieving people, haven't you? And, And we can all we can all argue here today whether or not we're getting the right people in dentistry, whether you need A-stars and everything to do it, or whether you need other skills. And I'm sure that discussion will happen over the next uh, decade or two. So for me, the problem I had, I couldn't read well. Uh, I was a very poor reader. So at school, I was tortured. But no, for, I'm not getting it, anyone. We have to read out loud at school. And of course, being dyslexic, it was a huge challenge for me doing that. And often you would the wrong words would come out, this, that, and the other and you would end up with um, lots and lots of ridicule, uh, which could be very, um, could really sap your confidence, actually, to be mm. honest. So I think there's a, I, I think I'm confident now, Josh, that people with dyslexia uh, coming through schools, uh, that would never happen now. So yeah. I think, um, as we know, that a lot of these neurodiversities, uh, it's not, a la- you might come over thick if you can't read properly, but actually your your intellect and your IQ is going to be up there with everybody mm. else's. But uh, for me, that was a challenge and it was the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so in terms of whether I could have got into dentistry or medicine again, now God only knows, but could I have coped with either? Could I have thrived in both? Yes, I'm, I'm sure I could have done. Yeah. And then moving on a little bit from there, so then you qualified. And then relatively soon after you did your master's in conservative dentistry, and you've had a series of other jobs in the restorative discipline after that. So what led you to start that master's program and and veer towards that path? So I think, um, so my brother and myself, we were second generation doctors and dentists in our family. And I think there was a, a... a subliminal advice from my parents don't, don't don't hold back you know if you if you want to do something different you 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 go and do it and we'll support you and near the end of my undergraduate year my mother died which had a huge effect on all of us and you know is it times like that you you say okay i've got one life here i'm going to make the best of my potential bubble and i think one of the things that has driven me on and if you speak to my older brother, the same is that. So we were in a position where we, we, I think, you know, particularly for me, I, I remember it very well saying, life's limited. Mm-hmm. You don't know how long you've got. I'm going to make the very best of it. And uh, I've always been very driven. Uh, and um, I wanted to get as good as I could get at dentistry and was prepared to do what it, what was needed to be done to do it. 
So the I I was very lucky. I qualified with honours and stuff, and and ended up getting very good house jobs and SHO jobs at KCH, uh, and. I then went into practice uh, because at the end of the day, that's where most dentistry is delivered in mm. practice. Uh, I always had a good pair of hands, so I, I was able actually to pick up cl- uh, practical tasks quite quite easily. And at KCH, we had fantastic training in certain parts of dentistry, particularly surgery, uh, management of emergency patients and operative dentistry. But perhaps in those days, less so in terms of the monos and, and restorative dentistry. Mm. And I came across a, a a consultant that joined KCH in 1984, Martin Keller, who some of you may know and have heard of, quite a, quite a, uh, not a shrinking violet type of a man. And he was the guy that first put me on to the East, Eastman Cons course. Um, and at that stage, uh, it was, in my view, the pinnacle in London, particularly, if you wanted to get a prosthodontic, uh, a, a, a master's, a, a taught master's program where you were actually going to be supervised clinically by the very best people. And what really appealed to me uh, with the course also is I was always also interested in endodontics. And at that stage, you had all the best endodontists in, in, in the capital, plus uh, the, the, the fixed pros people. And it was a fantastic one-year contained course. I struggled to get in, um, which I think is important that people, uh, just a message for everybody really, that I applied and I, you know, cleared up in a lot of the prizes at undergraduate and stuff. Uh, I, I struggled to get in, uh, and um, and I in those days was probably came over as a little bit of a you know sort of knew where he was going. You know, perhaps a little bit on the aggressive side and all those type of things. Uh, so I I, I I was advised by Derek Setchell, who ran the course then, uh, to go away and do primary fellowship, which was a very difficult examination in those days. And not many people passed those exams from primary care. So I did my primary fellowship from practice in the evenings uh, and, and um, probably my biggest achievement in my whole career to do that. And then the second year I went, well, if I was you, Peter, I would show us that you are you know, additionally keen, go and do your second part. So I did both parts of fellowship from, from primary care which was no undertaking actually uh, and i only got in in the end as a reserve when when one of the people that got a place damaged his leg when uh, he was taking time out in the south island of new zealand in rotorua and burned his leg uh, so i i was brought in as a late replacement virtually two weeks before the uh, course started my my course started in 87 so that's my journey to that so my message to people watching this is never give up and if you don't get in first in anything uh, you maximize the opportunity you're given and don't look back that's good advice for anybody anybody listening well lovely to hear that story so sort of fast forward sort of 25 years on shall we say and you've shared your working week part-time in practice part-time as a hospital consultant so what made you organize your working week like that yeah okay well i think you need to let's go back a little bit julie if i may because obviously my plan was always carrying out my wife's i met my wife at kch Uh, that was the biggest and best decision i made Uh, and we were going to set up a practice Uh, that was always our plan so i so i was going to do the masters i was going to do uh, the reason i came back to eastman to do the cons msc was derek Setchell allowed us to go for traveling for three months and come back and hold a job back and and that was the reason i continued in hospital it'd be no other reason than that 
And then having done that, I decided to do, I needed a lot to learn in Perry, which is where I came across you, and prosthodontics. So I did... Uh, I not did. tell too many stories. <laughs> no, we're, we're keeping I this podcast about and, um, and you. And neither not. of them different. <laughs> uh, so, so at that stage, I was committed to being a practitioner. And I hadn't done, uh, I self-funded my master's course. I wasn't on a training program at that stage, but because I had the FDS RCS, I was able to, to apply for a training program. So I applied for the South, South London uh, S, SR program, as it was in restorative dentistry, the first uh, of, 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 South, uh, of South East and Southwest London um, with, with, the, with the likes of Martin Keller, et cetera. And then when I'd done my training program, I'd always wanted wanted to uh, do both. I'd always wanted to be an NHS consultant. I didn't want to be an academic, actually, I, I, and I definitely didn't. Uh, my skill set were never going to be, it was never around t teaching undergraduates. So I, 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 that was not my skill set. So I always wanted to be an NHS consultant, and I always wanted to split. Why split? Um, uh, advice from our family growing up and never have all your eggs in one basket and I would suggest to everybody that you don't <laughs> and I wanted in the practice to set up an environment of no blame so the only person to blame for outcome problems or any problems was me uh, and we could fashion that business exactly as we wanted it to fashion my wife and I uh, worked together in that set up a great team and that's been the huge constant in our life the practice uh, and I set up initially by, um, you know, renting a room in a place and built it up. And eventually we put it in a Victorian extension in our house. Uh, and that's worked very well for us. Um, so uh, when I became a consultant, uh, I was very keen to do both. Uh, I'm, I, I would say that because of my upbringing, I am very committed and proud of this country that has the NHS, that people it ha have significant problems can be sorted out free at the free at the point of uh, source of, of care. And I am very committed to that. So I was never, ever going to want to work in my practice full time. Uh, and, and it wouldn't have stimulated me. It's not what my values are, actually. So I was very, very keen to commit my uh, restorative dentistry time, um, you know, and that made up the most part of my, I was always three and a half, four days yeah. in the NHS. And I, th I think it would be fair to say that we've interviewed quite a lot of people on these podcasts. And we've really said that when it comes to a career to just have variation because actually that's the thing that's going to keep you going that's the thing that's going to motivate you and inspire you to carry on and and ultimately provide um, the best type of care for your patients yeah i think my, my practice is referral practice so um the clients really were the referring dentist uh and um the difference in the practice was that patients could all afford to pay for their treatment. And as you all know, restorative dentistry and endodontics and the sort of stuff I was doing is reassuring expensive dentistry. So I don't think I'd want to have spent the whole of my week just um, contained to that group of patients. Uh, St. George's, I, you know, we, we'd have, I spent a lot of my career at St. George's and King's College Hospital in Southwest and Southeast London. And there were people that could hardly afford the bus fare to, to the hospitals that had significant problems to be sort of resolved. Yeah, I'm sure. And I, I really, really like that. That, that, that I, I felt as I was doing good there, really, really doing some good. And the other thing is, in a hospital, you are within a group, in and around a group of people. And 
as long as that group is good and you all align to your values and, and, and all of that and your behaviours are all in the right place, that can be very, very, very great. It can, can be a fantastic force for good. When it doesn't work, it can be a force of great negativity. Whereas in the practice, I have a small team that remain pretty consistent throughout the 25, 30 years of the practice. Uh, so two very different things, equally enjoyable in many ways. Um, uh, but that was the way it worked for me. Um, and I don't regret uh, either of them, actually. Um, and I, I would warmly recommend such a career to people. So talking about variation, another element of variation that came into your career was Health Education England and the work that you've done done with them. So what initially led you to take that step and get involved? And, and would you consider that other people maybe diversify in that direction as well? Yeah, I, 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 I would. Um, for me, again, that happened by accident, Josh. What happened really, you start off as a consultant uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a unit. We, it was a small unit I, I worked with. Uh, we, we had one, I think, one trainee. Um, so you build up the number of trainees um, and you have to have the approval from Health Education England or London Deanery, as it was then, for that. Um, and then you become their clinical supervisor, their education supervisor. And then I was asked to be TPD, which is program uh, training program director for Dent dental core training in South London. So that's one of the, the, the that was the direction uh, that, that I started to take. And then, of course, I became the TPD for restorative dentistry uh, in, in, in Pan London. So that that was my path to getting involved with um, Liz Jones, who was the dean in those days and, 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 and the London dean in HEE. And then eventually I applied for an associate. Uh, dean position uh, with responsibility for, 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 speci for specialist dentistry in London. So that was my route. Now, for those in primary care, yes, I would recommend it. Uh, the key is how do you go about how do you go about building that uh, career and that CV and unique selling points, etc., for 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 moving? So if you're in primary care, for me the the place that you've got two two routes to start. One is around dental foundation training, initially being a clinical supervisor, perhaps sharing being an education supervisor with somebody more senior, and then being an education supervisor and then considering applying to be a TPD uh, for Health Education England or as it is now as Director of Education uh, and, and Training in NHS England. The other opportunities are delivering education. Uh, obviously, uh, HE, when, when I was in, delivered a huge amount of education across the piece. So, I would suggest that you need to develop a unique selling point uh, and an area of expertise and difference from others uh, and see if you can buddy up with experienced uh, education deliverers and see if you can share slots with them and uh, sort of contact the the workforce people at uh, 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 the deanery to see whether or not you can do little presentations uh, accepting it's going to be assessed and fed back on uh, so that you can start building and building. So the answer is yes, I would recommend it and B, uh, there are ways you can start to develop a portfolio to allow you to do that. I'm not a great fan of um, uh, you know d doing degrees and diplomas, etc. I, I don't like tick box development. To be honest, I think a lot of it needs to be done experientially with mm -hmm. with some with some uh, obviously theoretical uh, backing. But yeah, there are so many options, Josh, to do that. And then you worked through that pathway to become a postgraduate dental dean. So a lot of people might have heard of that as a, as a job title, as a, as a role. 
I just wondered if you could just explore that a little bit more. What 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 actually is covered as part of that role? What kind of things did you get up to? What 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 did you what did you do on a day to day basis? So I was I was I started in um, January of 2017 as a postgraduate dental dean. There are eight postgraduate dental deans in England. Uh, there's obviously postgraduate deans in Northern Ireland, and Wales, and Scotland. So there's eleven in total. Uh, and broadly, you have some statutory functions at the local and national level. So what does a postgraduate dean do? Well, they are responsible for assuring quality of training programs and delivering workforce to the workplace with the relevant skills, attitudes and behaviours. So most people will know dental foundation training across the UK. There are about a thousand placements of dental foundation and VT training. And the program has a curriculum. It works to a blue guide uh, and the assessment points is an IRCP and FRCP. And you uh, get a satisfactory completion certificate and then you're able to go on the performer list without any uh, uh, conditions. So most people will understand dental foundation training and, you know, there are obviously commission study days. The other ones are the dental core training, there's DCT 1, 2 and 3. They tend to be 12 month programs. And then you've got your dental specialty training programs. Now, the dental specialty training program, I don't want to get too much detail here, Josh, <laughs> but there are some quite big differences. So the curriculum of dental foundation training is held predominantly with uh, Health Education England and Copdend, and the DCT curricula are held with uh, uh, Copdend. So the um, function of um, assurance for um, DFT and, DC and DCT is is quality assurance whereas the curricula for the 13 dental specialties is held by the GDC so the role of the postgraduate dean and the dean team is quality management of those programs and obviously with the dental specialty trainees at the end of their last uh, sort of FRCP, uh, when they d show that they have achieved all their competencies, the dean or dean designator is responsible for signing the REC1 form that allows them automatically to go onto the specialist list. So the deans are responsible for all of that um, training management process, assessment process, and all of that, and it's a big job. Uh, and obviously London KSS, which is the region I looked after, uh, we had a lot of trainees. There are other programs. Obviously, there is a Dental Therapy Foundation program, which is just around the corner, which is going to be fun consistently uh, from uh, the, the deaneries, which I think is a really good introduction. And then we have the function of workforce, existing workforce, uh, and um, delivering and commissioning courses for uh, that are relevant for all members of the team, uh, the dental team. Uh, and um, that's normally done within and around uh, learning and, and teaching environments such as practical skills, etc. And in, in the region I looked after, we, we were very lucky that we've got uh, practical skills labs in, in all of the regions, uh, in all of the training centres. So they're your main functions. There are some other stuff. Uh, obviously, we when I was a dean, we used to look after the registrants that had run into GDC and, and 
NHS England uh, problems, uh, uh, restoring you know uh, confidence and helping them with d development plans and working with the GDC. Uh, and the other big area was the overseas dentists, the performer list validation by experience. These mm -hmm. are overseas dentists that have to do some educational components in terms, again, of getting onto the performers list without conditions. So it's quite locally, it's quite a it's quite a big um, uh, uh, bit of work going on there because of the numbers, as you can imagine. Obviously, dental foundation training, the, the, the dean and the dean team is responsible for recruiting ESs is making sure the practices are suitable, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot going on. Uh, and there's a lot going on in terms of quality assurance and all of that, which um, you'll be aware that the teams have a lot of quality quality responsibilities. But in the end, the dean is the one that's responsible for quality of the training. That's I mean, this, this, is, this is a busy man, isn't it? So, oh, well, a busy job as well as all of the other things so you you're we've already touched on some of the other things that you're doing but what what helps you try and lead succeed what motivates you what keeps you going yeah no it's, it's well i think um i've always been um i i i'm always happy to try something um and i've always i've always been quite happy to put my hands up um, and say yes to say yes um, <laughs> and I've always been from quite an early stage in my life um, I was singled out as, as, as being able to lead uh, groups of people and that started off for me when I was a sportsman very early on um, when you know I used to play at county and regional level in, in terms of rugby football and I always remember um, after a county training uh, uh, session and the coach said okay Briggs he's going to captain the side now you could have knocked me over with a with a feather and, and it was it was that sort of thing as saying god why in the hell do you think I'm going to be doing that and I've had people as I've progressed in life that have said, okay, we think you're up to. So one of the big things, Julia, I did in terms of learning to lead people within the NHS, I was asked to be the clinical director of the maxillofacial unit at St George's at a very early age. I was, I was, I was, had only been qualified for, I'd only been a consultant for two years, and the department had huge amount of things going on. It needed to move from an old missing hut to a new building. There was a whole load of stuff going on, and so people had had confidence that I was able to to basically lead team and be able to facilitate change. So that's that's always what's driven me. I, I'm not a steady state performer. I like making things better. I like working with people, delegating responsibility to people in a trusted fashion. Uh, and uh, so I've always, I've always, I, I've been very comfortable doing these roles. I, I quite like leading teams. I like the teams to be. Obviously, it has to be leader led. It has to, you've got, somebody's got to, you know, I have yeah. to be the leader. Yes. But in, but for me, it's team driven with a really low hierarchy, uh, where we all get on. And I'm, I'm always about humour. I do not like ourselves to be too serious. I like us laugh at ourselves. So I think, well, hopefully, all the teams that I've worked in, we all have a laugh. So that for me, it hasn't been a huge problem. I, I, I've um, quite enjoyed doing it. Clearly, I'm just thinking about people who are perhaps at the early stages of their careers, who are thinking, which direction am I going to go? Is this something that I'm interested in? And I think really, what I'm getting from what you're saying is actually have an open mind, 
say yes, embrace change. Have I missed anything? Yeah, I think you have. I think um, I think if you, if you if if somebody has got some um, ideas about what they want to do in terms of leadership, uh, the first thing they've got to do is they've got to heavily invest in themselves, the self. Uh, and I know that previous uh, people on these uh, the podcasts are talking about spiral leader, and the first uh, the the first module on spiral leadership is about the self. So they need to understand what makes themselves tick and what it is that they want to do. Now, I don't want to get too much into this, but um, there's a difference between your purpose and goals. And uh, I think you have to ask yourself, what is my purpose professionally? What am I here to do? What do I want to do? And how do I want to live my life as a professional? Uh, and that's different from having goals because the trouble with having goals, and I had goals like everybody else, I've achieved most of my goals. And it's the question of what pushes you on, you know, to the next goal. And what does that is your purpose. So my purpose is to live like professionally, make dentistry better than when I came in and to help people exceed their potential bubble. Uh, that's what my purpose is, uh, and um, and 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 I never wanted necessarily to be the limelight of any of these teams I've led, but I've been very proud of what they've achieved and the people I've worked with. So I think what I would say to anyone is, what is what is it that they want from leadership? Is it about them? You know, and there's nothing wrong with it being about you, uh, or or is it about your your to do, to do you 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 feel that you work better collectively? Uh, and that you want to build a, a, a team with your culture and your values. Um, but you've got to understand what your culture and values are, your goals are, and your purpose first, uh, in my view. And I was very clear to people, and probably it was there for black and white, people to understand exactly if they want me to be a leader of a team, what they were going to get. I'm very honest. Um, you know, probity, I'm very, 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 um, uh, you know, very hard on probity from all, all the members of the team. But we're all going to work hard. We're going to play hard as well. Uh, but uh, for me, uh, anyone starting out in all of this, if, yeah, what is it that I want? Mm. What I is it about good, me? I think that's, that's, that's good you know, advice. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And what do people think of you? You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's no good asking your friends what people think of you. I think if somebody is um, wanting to lead a group of people, you need to be followed and you must have respect. So I think you need to start very, very early on with 360 degree appraisals from people that you don't know. They're not friends of yours. Tell me, give me an honest appraisal of what you think about my performance and how we all get on. And you'll be, you know, I've, I've done 360 degree appraisals in my career and I've been shocked what people have said about about me I, and I've learned I, from I think it. that, yeah, that I mean that, that we could almost do a whole podcast on that because actually I think that's a really interesting subject which I think is uh, inspiring terrifying in probably equal measure but I think you're right I think if you if you want to go to these certain levels you're going to have to try and see it from that point of view so yeah thank you so you've actually just retired from being postgraduate dental dean and you mentioned there about the various teams that you've worked with and, and the, the whole host of different things that you were involved in as part of that role. Part of that period was COVID as well, which I'm sure we could have a whole podcast about that as well. But I'm interested to hear out of all of that, what do you see as your successes? What are the key things that stand out to you as things that not necessarily yourself, yourself and the team have, have done during that time that you're, that you're proud of? So um, 
so yeah now there's a few things that really uh, i've been very very happy with how things have turned out so i think the first the first thing that i was very proud of was um what we were able to do at st george's uh, uh, hospital where when i started as a consultant we were working in effectively an old shack of a, a department and what was necessary to um, move that to a purpose-built building, which we did in 1997. And the other bits of work we had to do then, um, and I will admit that probably I was t inexperienced and and um, a little bit out of my depth in doing so. We I was asked to be involved in the reconfiguration of maxillofacial services to the Gelbier report in, 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 in the late 90s. Uh, and we were dealing with southwest London. So you can imagine how difficult that would have been where basically you were reducing the number of hospitals within patient beds, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I was very proud that we I, I learned chunks in that um, time. And what I learned then uh, was that you can achieve these very difficult things, but actually uh, I needed to improve my leadership style. I needed to get, I needed to uh, delegate more, uh, get more people involved in doing these tasks and giving more responsibility for people when we were dealing with all of these type of things. So, so that was my first thing that was to get into the new unit that we had at St. George's for me was a huge, huge, huge buzz. The other thing that I really enjoyed doing, which was very innovative, I was asked in, t in t 2009 to 2011 to put together a team of people to train dentists with enhanced skills in endodontics across London. And um, we put together a program that involved working in, 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 in practice, working in the simulation environment. And I actually went into the practices and treated patients with them. And that was a fantastic um, experience for me. And um, and I think that the the course and the team I work with uh, produced you know a, a group of general practitioners upskilled them, uh, and I still see a lot of the practitioners today. And I'm particularly proud of how that worked out and how how the NHS and NHS patients were helped with that course because I'm not the sort of restorative consultant who could just sit by and just write letters that you knew were not going to be achievable uh, and particularly with the uh, the contract issues of the NHS. So my view is to set up a sort of a network of level two practitioners around St George's so patients could be sent to them and commissioned to them and, and I, I'm very proud that we did that because I think we were the first uh, first area of London to do that and I, I'm very proud of it. The final thing for me is um, obviously uh, my uh, time at Health Education England as Dean was uh, particularly difficult during COVID and um, I am so proud of what we did in COVID particularly the redeployments of the Dental Foundation trainees um, they, they were you know we had a lot of them going off to um, you know, prone patients at Northwood Park Hospital and things like that the PMART system where they were going into um, uh, houses where people had died of COVID with emergency services these were scary environments for for young dentists and um, remembering the they're employed by a practice owner so think of all of the legislative and the HR issues around doing that so I'm so proud that people like Sarnamo Haiti, myself Victoria Rowland uh, we were able to to, to really utilise that resource uh, as we did and my most recent thing is um, 
obviously I, I became the, the UK national lead dean for dental foundation training and working with the, den, the dental the DERP team, which is the dental education reform program, we introduced a single um, lead employer for dental foundation training in England. We did it in September 2022. And that directly flowed from the difficulties of COVID so that if another dean has to uh, cope with a, a pandemic, they will not have half the problems that we had in terms of trying to, in a, you know, trying to redeploy staff uh, so for that from so that they are some of the some of the things that we have done have done and I'm also from COVID just one thing I would say that I think is also very important and, and it was long overdue uh, we in we managed work with the GDC and the Dental Schools Council to introduce the education transition document for dental foundation training which people had talked about for years which is a document that moved with the transition from undergraduate to DFT working um, so that the dental schools and the learner can give feedback in terms of where they think they are in terms of readiness for practice and then the ES the education supervisor can make comment on that at the early stage of view which is about week eight of training and then that can be used as part of all of our assurance process including the GDC and although it's work in progress it's been fantastic and I'm so proud that the team did that because it was something that uh, we, we all should have had for, for a long period of And, you know, the conversation between the Dental Schools Council, you know, and I did a lot, I was involved in a lot of those meetings and, and Health Education England COPDEN has been so positive and much of that has been as a result of closer working in COVID. So a lot of good came out of COVID. I, th I think a lot did. I mean, mm. again, <laughs> we could almost do another podcast for, for all of that. I mean... That you've just been talking about what you've done, but I'm thinking about whether you're thinking, wow, what about the future? Yeah, it's it's the future. The future's I, I I'm quite um, positive bloke, um, and so I've I've taken three months off dentistry. I'm obviously coming in here today, so I, but my plan is to take three months off dentistry. And uh, we still, I still do some medical legal work because um, over the years I've been used by various agencies to do that. So we still do that. Um, yeah, Julia, the future. So I, I, I was. Um, I think it's a bit like a sportsman, isn't it? Uh, retiring sportsman is, is what, 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 what does life hold? And, and I would say in life, there's peaks uh, in your life and they're going to be slightly different, uh, but they don't need to be in any way less rewarding. So my hope is that I've had loads and loads of peaks and troughs in my life uh, and I'm looking forward to the next however many year, years I have. Um, I would like to give things back, so I'm very into giving things back. I don't particularly want to monetize anything that I, that I do. Um, I think the I think the young workforce, whether it be DCP, dental nurses, or dentists, I think they need a lot of help from people like me. Actually, in terms of giving them confidence, um, that actually we all had the same concerns uh, and anxiety, etc. And you know, when I was younger. Um, I, you know, when I was 34, it was just your pat, our third son was born. I developed um, panic attacks uh, when I was at St. George's, just being appointed as a consultant between St. George's and KCH. And uh, had a huge effect on me. It lasted for about three years. And clearly it was all about the overfill of my bucket of stress and what I could cope with. Uh, but um, so I've been there. 
I, I know how, how debilitating that can be. And um, I got better by facing up to it and saying, look, the last thing you can do is run away from all of this. Uh, but I have seen it uh, and I understand when people's mental and he health and well-being can, the bucket bucket of coping can, can overflow. Uh, and, you know, people like that need people like me to say, do you know what? That happens. You know, doing dentistry is a stressful job and we all know it's a stressful job. Yeah. You can't yeah. sugar pill it that it isn't because it is. And particularly, I've always been, you know, I, I'd like to think of the operator as a performance clinician, high performance. I, I, you know, like, I'm very keen to get really good outcomes. I like my outcomes to be comparable with others, all that, all that type of stuff. Um, and with that comes a lot of, lot, lot of, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. Uh, and high level dentistry is not without its stress and strain. And then you add to that all of the life issues, the fathering duties and all of that type of stuff. Um, so all I can say to everybody is, you know, that you, people like me are important that you can reassure the, the, the people coming through that I was scared of things once uh, and still I'm scared of certain things. I mean, I I'd never had liked particularly talking about myself. I always, you know, I'm very happy to take the blame for a problem, but I like the praise to be shared by a team of individuals, not me. Um, and for instance, I found coming here talking to you two about myself a little stressful today because <laughs> it's not something I like doing, to be honest. Because uh, there's nobody more there's nobody more surprised than what I've the, the opportunities I've had in life. And people talk about the you know, the syndrome of you know oh my god you know you know is it me is it me is it me and I, that I, imposter syndrome in, is, yeah, is real for men and women. And, and that imposter syndrome is alive and well in most people in very powerful and and high positions and don't believe it isn't because it, it, it is and and actually if if somebody hasn't got a little of that going on i would say i just wonder whether they've got the insight of uh, of the responsibilities they've got so don't think that people like me have not got all the emotional concerns have the anxiety and, and all the things that that, that, that that younger dentists and what younger workforce do uh, because we do i mean I, I this whole podcast really josh isn't it, it it's about inspiring people it's about motivating people but one of our other things is educating people by other people's experiences 100%. and i think it's been such a privilege hearing your story and your journey and i will thank you personally for being so honest about your journey because actually I think people are inspired by these sorts of stories. So you've reflected over various different elements of your own career but I guess the natural question is where do you see things going forward in, in maybe 10 years, 20 years? What do you think is the future for dentistry or the challenges that we might encounter as, as we move forward? So before I answer that, that, that Josh, because I think it's a very important question, is you know, this is my personal view. It's not a view endorsed by any of the people that I personally work for and being employed. So it's um, hold on to your hats. <laughs> so I think there are going to be huge issues for dentistry. Um, I think dentistry is in a very difficult place at the moment. You only need to look at the Health Watch survey of patients in terms of how they perceive NHS services and dentistry generally to realise we've got some huge huge problems. Now I'm not going to get into political argument about that but I think we are going to have to ask ourselves very carefully very soon how the uh, lump of money that is there to fund primary care dentistry and CDS dentistry uh, is, is best used for the population. 
So I think that's that, and that's not part of my brief. Uh, but that 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 those discussions and decision making needs to happen. So that's the first thing. So mm -hmm. I think dentistry is in a huge problem, and I think a lot of young dentists find working in the NHS a very difficult thing. And um, it was difficult in my day. I think it is much more difficult now. Uh, and um, you know, I would leave people more expert to get on with that. But you, that problem has got to be solved. Mm -hmm. The next problem I think we've got in dentistry is we've got um, most of our problems are in disadvantaged patients. So as in health, we know that the uh, your your life chances in life will affect your general health and your dental health. So our, we have a lot of dental disease in, in disadvantaged patient groups. And often uh, the, the biggest need for, for those patients is in geographies where workforce do not want to live and work, uh, such as rural and coastal areas. So we need a complete rethink about how we get our workforce to the areas where patients most need us in terms of the NHS. I'm not talking about the worried well that's coming in with no susceptibility disease and, you know, I want some... You know, once a tick, I'm talking about people that really do have what we, you and I would call disease that needs proper dentistry uh, on it. So, so that that is quite a problem. And um, in terms of dentists, we need to start thinking about how we ensure that we get dental students coming from those areas. Because if you look at the distribution of dental s schools in the in England at the moment, um, a lot of them are up in the northwest. You've got Birmingham, you've got the two in London, and you've got two down in, 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 in the southwest. So you've got huge parts of England that they've got no dental school anywhere near them, classically the east of England and East Midlands. And we've got to do something about that if we are going to try and resolve this dental deserts, which is now very high up in the um, uh, uh, political agenda. Because once patients lose um, faith in us, our profession will unravel, and it's important people understand that. So we've got to do something about that. So we've got to start recruiting dental students from the areas where we need them most, uh, and we may even need to start some of the undergraduate training as satellites or something. And in do you those think areas. it's just about dentists, or do you think, think that we ought to be doing? I think it's you know, the whole lot. Um, I, I think with DCPs, the evidence that I'm aware of from the ADC, because I was involved doing one of the ADC work streams, is that you t they tend to be more local already, um, uh, Julia. But in terms of you know the, the dental nurses, the dental therapists, hygiene, etc., the same will apply. Um, and we have a lot of dental students applying for dentistry that live in and around London and the M25 ring. Um, don't hold me down actually to these figures, but it's around 50%. And of course, that causes an absolute disaster when eventually, wherever they do their dental training, you know, the urban area sucks them back. So we've got, they are big problems, um, I'm afraid. And I, and I think uh, we mustn't be, um, we, we mustn't be shy about talking about them. I, I haven't got all the solutions to those problems, but we mustn't be shy about talking. I think the other issue that we have is pretty, you know, preschool children with caries we need to sort that out it's, it tends to be in highly focused areas of need and we need we need to think about how prevention can best work uh, and, and how you can integrate it with with those patient groups and i think the sleeping giant 
is dementia and cognitive decline of the elderly. Uh, and in my generation, Josh, uh, you know, there were, third, I think it was 30% of population over 60 were dentalists. It's probably now under four. So uh, you've got a, you've got a group of patients, large number of patients who are going to be suffering from a cognitive decline who have all or most of their natural teeth and uh, I don't think we understand how, at this stage how big a problem that's going to be as the baby boom and generation uh, start to get those type of problems. So they are your challenges uh, for the future and uh, I haven't got all the answers uh, but they are big things to 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 mull over uh and i think the 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 you know i think the decline of uh, uh cognitive decline patients i think is going to be a huge huge problem the thing is people my age um our parents and our parents-in-law have un unpeeled so we see what happens uh and and you do realize that you know fit and well people one minute can become dental cripples the next uh and it's then how you how you manage and how you look after them and where that care is and in the olden days of course a lot of them were wearing complete dentures but that's just not the case now so i think that's something that needs to be high on our agenda actually uh and i think you've given everybody a great deal to think about so Thank you very much for being on this podcast. Thank you so much. I concur. From uh, somebody who's in the earlier stages of their career, it's really inspiring actually to, to hear you talk about that. So thank you for sharing your reflections on a, a wonderful career. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. If you've been inspired by that episode, did you know that the Eastman Dental Hospital Education Centre provide training for the whole dental team? Follow us on social media or search for the Eastman Dental Hospital Education Centre to find out more. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. We would love to hear your suggestions for future guests. Remember to follow us on social media using hashtag the Eastman Dental Podcast. And if you like what you hear, please like, share, subscribe and listen out for future episodes. Music